Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider donating. Even if you toss me five bucks, it makes me feel better and as if you actually care about me. Visit www.writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click on support the blog to donate either by giving to GoFundMe through PayPal, or you can support me by buying me a coffee, which trust me, is dearly needed. Today's guest is Blair Hurley, who received her AB from Princeton University and her MFA from NYU. Her stories are published or forthcoming in Ninth Letter, The Georgia Review, West Branch, Mid-American Review, Washington Square, Hayden's Ferry Review, Descant, Fugue, and elsewhere. She has received a 2018 Pushcart Prize and scholarships from Breadloaf and the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center for the Arts. Her debut novel, The Devoted, was published in August 2018 from W.W. Norton and Company. Blair joined me today to talk about writing to your own interests, even if that means your story is a quieter one, and the misconception of dismissing clarity in writing for simplistic novels. 16-year-old Alice Burton has a crush on a college guy, but the night he finally notices her, so does her dad's creepy best friend. Wasted Pretty by Jamie Beth Cohen follows Alice as she tries to protect her future, her body, and her heart. Let's start out talking about getting agented. Listeners are always interested Mm -hmm. in that successful agent hunt. So can you talk about your experience with that, your journey toward landing an agent? I would say it was definitely a quest. It took a little bit of discovering what my story needed and learning when it was ready. I think a common thing that starting out writers hear is that they usually send out their manuscript before it's fully ready. Mm. And I definitely had that experience myself. So I worked on a novel, this novel, The Devoted, for several years. And I did a couple rewrites and big edits. And at that point, I thought, oh, surely it's ready by now. So I started sending it out to agents, just cold calling, just looking at any agents that books that I loved that I thought were comparable. I definitely did the thing that a lot of people recommend, which is looking in the acknowledgments of the books that you love and seeing who their agents are. Sent out to a flurry of agents, oh, I'd say 20 or 30, something like that. And I got very encouraging rejections, I would say, with some nice comments and requests for whatever you're working on next. Feel free to contact me, but nothing, no bites. So at that point, I had to kind of sit back and really take a hard look at my manuscript and decide, do I still believe in this? Do I think it's worth fixing Mm -hmm. uh, or do I want to move on to something else? I took a long weekend and I read it through again and I thought hard about it and I decided, yes, I still believe in this. So then I did another rewrite and at that point I sent it out to another few agents and that was when my agent was interested and, uh, and I signed with him. So how long were you querying overall? Good question. I did it in those two batches. I would say uh, over a period of a couple months for the first flurry. Uh, and then I put the book aside for a little while and I edited. 
And then another, the next flurry was nine months after that. Again, I sent out queries for about a month or two. Mm -hmm. And when you were doing this editing in between your query batches, were you doing that Mm -hmm. based on some of the feedback that you were getting from your responses? Or were you just looking at the text yourself and saying, okay, I know this isn't ready? Mm, It was a little bit of both. So I was looking for common themes in the rejections I was getting. And a lot of the time, the feedback I was getting was just sort of, it was a little vague, but it was saying, um, oh, I just didn't feel fully invested in the story, or Mm. I wasn't fully engaged with, with this character. After seeing that a few times, I decided what really needed to be improved was the sense of urgency in the plot, actually, to really make sure there was a strong through line in the plot, Mm -hmm. a real reason to be worried about the character and to feel that she was in danger in a way, Mm -hmm. either emotional danger or physical danger. My next rewrite was really focused on increasing suspense and urgency. And that novel, the one that you queried was The Devoted, correct? Yes, that's right. That came out to wonderful reviews. And you had great blurbs, oh, great blurbs from excellent authors. So can you tell us a little bit more about like the book itself and the process that you used for writing it? I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I wasn't quite sure what was my topic, what I wanted to write about for a long time. And yet the thing that I had a, a lifelong interest in and curiosity about was uh, spirituality and religion, really. Mm-hmm. So I was a English and creative writing major in college, but I took religion classes more than almost any other subject. And I was just fascinated with culture and belief, particularly around Buddhism and my own kind of family history of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. So I had a kind of uh, lifelong interest in these two faiths and I started seeing parallels. And I think my writing really started to become special or something that I was really excited about when I started writing about these faiths. And uh, so in college, I started writing short stories about practitioners of Buddhism and uh, people who were struggling with their own faith. Once I discovered that, I realized that that was the story that I wanted to tell. So The Devoted is about a Boston Irish Catholic woman who in her teen years has a kind of break with her faith and converts to Zen Buddhism but then becomes trapped in a manipulative relationship with her Zen master. Mm. So it's about the healing and redemptive power that, that faith and devotion can give us, but it's also about the dangers of succumbing to a powerful authority figure in a spiritual tradition. I tried to find parallels, and I was seeing them everywhere, actually, between the problems of power and authority that have been breaking lately with the Catholic Church mm-hmm. and in Zen Buddhism in America as well. There have been real problems with abuses of power on the part of teachers. The more I researched about that, the more I just saw kind of common threads there. And I wanted to write the experience of women within these traditions. Because another thing that I just kept noticing as I read more and more stories about religious quests and spiritual journeys, uh, it was very rare that you actually got to see a woman on a religious quest. That was something that I felt as kind of my driving purpose for writing the novel. I wanted to write sort of a girl spiritual quest. And when you go about writing a spiritual quest, as you were saying, one of the things that you were noticing when you were revising was that perhaps the plot 
wasn't driving enough or critical enough at times. Maybe mm-hmm. pacing was off. I think that's a definite risk that you take when your journey and your plot and your danger is essentially internal. And mm-hmm. in some cases, like spiritual or, um, you know, emotional damage as opposed to physical. Writing physical damage is something that we can all look at a broken leg and go, I don't want that, <laughs> right? Yeah. But um, Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so talk about that a little bit, if you could. Talk about how, how do you portray more of a quiet plot in a way that mm-hmm. is still very urgent? Yeah, that was a big struggle, something that I've always struggled with my own writing, I think because I just tend towards quietness and internal reflection in my writing. But when I think about the books that I love to read, they are books with propulsive plots where you feel this need to turn the page. Mm -hmm. So that was something that doesn't come naturally to me, but that I really tried to stretch to increase in The Devoted. I was trying to capture the experience of meditating in Zen, a big amount of the time you spend in Zen is just sitting quietly. And so I had to make the experience of meditation exciting. There's a whole scene in the book that my main character is just meditating. And it can be an exciting experience when you're sort of getting to know yourself and discovering new things about your own mind. But it took several drafts for me to kind of hone in on what is exciting about that experience. And I wanted to show that internal experience. So that was something that I I tried to work on just to kind of increase the drama of what's going on in your own mind. But I also wanted to increase external dangers. I wanted the Zen master figure in this story to to be a fairly chilling and unsettling figure, maybe more complex than just a pure villain, but he's definitely an ominous, menacing figure in several points in the story. I think in that last draft where I was increasing urgency, I just wrote more scenes with him to try to show what was so unsettling about him. And I also had him kind of popping up at different points in the story. Just when my main character thinks she's free, he's going to call on the phone or just kind of show up in her memories and remind us that there's this looming presence in her life, someone that she's having difficulty freeing herself from. To increase the urgency, sometimes it's just a question of like having your source of urgency just pop up as a reminder, appear again and remind us, oh yes, there is this problem here. We have to deal with this. There's a threat in the story. Mm-hmm. So I did try to make him more chilling over over draft after draft. He became increasingly chilling, I would say. And anybody that has dealt with an abusive relationship or has anxiety issues, any kind of emotional disturbance, Emotional danger is just as riveting as physical danger. It's just harder to Mm. write. Yeah, definitely. And that was something I had to work on because it is just sort of hard. If someone is emotionally anxious, it's just hard to externalize that on the page. So Mm -hmm. when I showed early drafts to my friends who were my trusted readers, I would get question marks and questions with them saying, well, why is she so detached here? Or why is she staying with him? I think that's one of the the classic questions that is asked of both people and fictional characters uh, that are trapped in abusive relationships. The question is, why, why does she stay? And I had to do a lot of work to figure out the answer to that question, mm-hmm. I think, because at first I just left it a mystery. But really, we need to understand what is at the root of that. And so I had to discover more about her past and who she was and what she wanted. 
and why she was kind of confusing a teacher's guidance for something deeper, like affection and love, which she also craves. Yes, the question of why specifically women do stay in relationships like that, that's a long-standing question. Um, I think about a year, mm-hmm. a year and a half ago, there was a wonderful hashtag on Twitter, and it was just why I stayed. I think I remember checking in to that and just seeing these incredible stories. Absolutely. And it's very, oh, it's devastating and humanizing to see all the different factors, mm-hmm. uh, emotional, financial, all sorts of reasons why people feel powerless and feel that they they can't leave, even if they're being harmed in a relationship. It's very easy to point out and identify physical abuse or sexual abuse, but mm-hmm. emotional abuse is obviously much more much more difficult to pinpoint and in for that matter is yeah. somewhat more sinister and so yes i think it's also again more difficult to portray in a way that makes you both understand that that is in fact what is going on and also still continue mm-hmm. to sympathize with your main character other than just going oh my god just leave yeah yeah absolutely i i wanted my readers to feel sympathy for this this character. And there's always the risk that a reader will just say, well, I just couldn't sympathize with her because she does frustrating things and makes Mm -hmm. poor choices. That was one way I really felt strongly. I wanted my character to be very human, to make mistakes and to continue making bad choices because that that is what human beings do. We make bad choices. I wanted her to have the freedom to transgress, to mess up, sometimes to make choices for herself as opposed to say, for the good of her family or what her family wants for her. Mm-hmm. I do feel that there's this standard in in stories where women are expected to kind of uphold a domestic ideal or to always put their families first, or to put aside their own desire for freedom. That It's a, it's a recurring theme, I think, in a lot of, uh, of stories of women in fiction. So I wanted her to have the same kind of freedom to mess up as, as many male characters seem to have. Have you read The Glass Castle? Oh, yes. Yeah, that's a great story. Uh Yes. So I just listened to it recently, and it's similar in that the father is so manipulative and abusive and... And the mother is, Mm -hmm. too. The mother is, too. Like, they're both just really irresponsible parents. Yeah, they're so frustrating. They're awful, (laughs) yes. And I'm listening to it, and I'm just saying to myself, oh, my gosh, get out, leave. But, of course, it's children. It's children. They can't. I remember that feeling. And and there are those moments where she has, the, the daughter has, like, a chance to get out. And the father will steal the money that she's been saving up or something like that. And you just feel, oh, gosh, so frustrated on on her behalf, definitely. Yeah. It's a true story. How can this be true? This is terrible. And and I just kept waiting for it to to take that next step to physical or sexual abuse. And it never did. Like, it all was truly just Mm. manipulative and control and emotional. The other part that I was interested in in my own story was this idea of family love and how it can be so sustaining and so so important to us, the love of our parents and our families, but it can also feel like a burden sometimes mm-hmm. and feel constricting. Mm-hmm. So there's a part in the book, a lot of it is about my character's relationship with her mother as well, and how love can sometimes feel like a kind of ownership. 
And if someone loves you, it's a bind, it's a bond, and you can feel constricted by that. You don't feel free to make your own choices always in your life, especially if it's a parent-child bond. In The Glass Castle, definitely, I think a lot of the reason why she kind of puts up with that for a long time, there's love there as well. There's this kind of filial love and obligation, maybe even to try to help save her parents from their own problems. Definitely. And even how completely unhealthy the relationship is. But at the same time, Mm. the parents aren't villains. There are still (laughs) these scenes where, you know, they love their children. They're just their children themselves and they have Mm -hmm. problems and they just they just can't. They just can't be parents. And I love even the way she ends the book with her father's death and being there for him and and making him feel like he hadn't been a bad father at the end just because she wasn't going to do that to him because she loves him. And Mm -hmm. and I love how you describe that love as both a bond and a bind. It's a beautiful part of being in a loving relationship to kind of accept the way that you're tied to someone. But it it has downsides as well. There's this old Irish saying, a son's a son till he gets him a wife, a daughter's a daughter the rest of her life. It might be a heavier burden on daughters in particular, that daughters are expected to care for the parents and to be there and to have that connection and to help save them as well. I (laughs) want to bring up another novel. Have you read Reincarnation Blues? Oh, no, I haven't. I've heard of this. It's good, right? (laughs) It's quite good. Definitely check it out. One of the things that I did enjoy Mm -hmm. about it so much and one of the reasons I bring it up is because there actually are fairly long sections that are with the narrator meditating. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And he talks about oh, how difficult right it is. Oh, that'll be right up my alley. Then. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you'll love it. It's an amazing book. It truly is. But uh-huh. he talks about the difficulty of it and um, how the emptying of the mind is almost impossible. And his hang up, mm-hmm. he keeps thinking about cats occasionally. Like that's what pops <laughs> up in his mind. You know, it's not his grocery yeah. list or I have to go do this or anything like that. It's cats. It's like he'll be trying to meditate and a cat just like runs across his brain and he's like, oh, you know, I don't do it strictly or religiously myself. But when I do um, commercial jingles, (laughs) the songs, you know, that we know, they're just like running through my head. I cannot stop them. (laughs) They are devious. They really are. The super catchy ones, especially, there is something almost demonic about those because they do pop Mm -hmm. up. I was talking to someone the other day about chewing gum commercials from the 80s. I can sing all of them. That's how our brains operate, that we absorb music and cadence, and that's what makes it easier to remember anything like that. When I learned that the official term for that, earworm, Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, that's such a great name for it, because it's like insidious. It's just slithering its way through your brain. It's a parasite. Oh, earworm. Yeah, it is. Yeah. (laughs) Another one of the big distractions these days, and I think this is one reason why meditation is increasingly popular these days. I think it's because of the short attention spans that traveling through the internet has given us. We feel this kind of jitteriness constantly. We're always distracted. We're getting little pings from our emails Mm -hmm. throughout the day. It's really hard to sustain deep thought and creative thought when we are living on the internet. I find myself sometimes kind of cycling through my most guilty pleasure sites and I'll like go through five of them and click and scroll. And then by the time I've gotten to the end, I'll go back to the beginning again. Yep. And I realize that I'm just sort of cycling 
And it is the worst. It is the worst for writers, I think. It's not good to have Facebook open while you are trying to write something that is creative. (laughs) No, I do the same thing. It's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Then I hit CNN and then my local news. And then I go back to the Mm -hmm. beginning because something might have changed. Absolutely right. It's just insidious. Yep. Uh, maybe some of your your uh, your other people that you've interviewed have talked about like their productivity uh, hacks and things like that. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely use that app that is called Freedom. You yep. know, to sort of block the internet sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I have talked to multiple writers that also have begun drafting on typewriters. Oh wow, that's great. <laughs> yeah, because they can't they can't just hop onto the internet. You know. And, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. they, they actually draft on a typewriter and then they scan it and they use an OCR, occipital character recognition program, to then transfer it into a digital document. That is smart. I would still do write maybe half of my first drafts. I will start by hand in a notebook. Mm-hmm. I just like the sort of tactile experience of writing away and not having to, you know, type back or the way that it's so easy to to write on a, on a keyboard, I think makes me overwrite sometimes. It's so easy to just throw in more words that I'm, I'm wordier when sure. I'm on the keyboard as opposed to writing by hand. Coming up, the difficulty of breaking into the short story market, the motivations for doing so, as well as the art of teaching writing. Witness the opioid epidemic through the eyes of a high school softball star. Kirkus calls heroin, a cautionary tale that exposes the danger of prescription medications by humanizing one victim of America's current epidemic. Heroin by Mindy McGinnis. Let's talk about your short stories. You have Mm -hmm. multiple short pieces published, and that can be very difficult if not more mm. difficult than getting a novel published. I know I've tried to submit things to literary magazines and contests with varying degrees of success, but I found myself mm-hmm. reliving the rejection life oh, over yeah. again. Talk it about is, those yeah. goals. Like, What are your goals when you're mm-hmm. publishing short fiction? Are you looking to be paid or are you looking to get your work out there and get it in front of some eyes? When I'm trying to publish short stories, I'm definitely not ambitiously seeking payment very much mm-hmm. uh, because even some of the most prestigious magazines pay very little. So yeah. it's definitely not about the payment. It is about kind of building my resume and wanting to participate in the literary community, definitely getting more eyes on stories, starting to build, hopefully uh, have a story collection someday and to kind mm-hmm. of find homes for these stories. So the goal has always been just to kind of grow my own writing resume and experience and and have a role, a stake in the literary community. I also just love short stories. I think it's a, an amazing form. I think short stories can be more daring and bold with their experiments and their formats than the average novel. So I love writing them. I think I'll probably always be writing them. I started young with a habit of sending it out, I think. Mm -hmm. I started at an age where I shouldn't have even been sending it out because I was so young and naive. But I really started sending stories out to magazines when I was like 17 or 18. Wow. Yeah, I just kind of got in the habit of it because once I was learning about these magazines and then I learned that, yes, they do read and they pull things out of the slush pile thought, why not me? So I started sending out things. I'm the very organized type. So I kept a spreadsheet and Mm. I sent things out and tracked rejections. Certainly rejection is part of the story. It's a big part of the story. And 
you're always going to be rejected more than you're accepted. I think I trained myself at a young age to just kind of accept that it was kind of exciting to get something back in the mail back in the old days when you got those little paper slips and envelopes. And I would look for a little note, you know, those good rejections Mm -hmm. where some editor had scribbled something about how not for us, but try again. And I thought, oh, this means that someone read my work and someone thought it was worth giving me a little bit of feedback on. I go for those moments and I accept that rejection is just part of the story. I've been doing it so long that they can just kind of roll off my back now, I think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I like having things out. You always have to have things in the pipeline because the timeline is so long for these things. A lot of them can take six to nine months to get back to you. So if you've only got one thing out and you've waited six months, that's not a very efficient use of your time, I would say. I try to do it in batches. I consider it part of my job as a writer to devote some time to just submitting. And I've even had, I've made it social. So I've had like submitting parties with my writer friends Mm -hmm. where we all come over and we eat snacks and we pick 10 places and we send our work out. I like it. So it can be fun. You can make it fun. You can just consider it as part of your job. So when I have some new stories done, I try to make it like one day a week where I'm just doing writer career advancement, Mm -hmm. where I am researching magazines, sending stories out, preparing them for sending out. Yeah, I think that's just kind of part of the of the writer job. So I try to keep a regular flow of stories out there. <laughs> and when you get that acceptance, oh, it's all worth it, right? It's such yeah. a great feeling. Yeah. <laughs> when you were 17 and receiving those mm-hmm. rejections, and I do remember the slips. I actually would hold them up to the light before I opened the envelope because some of them would just have... <laughs> literally have boxes that were checked yes no you know oh sure yeah yeah and I, and just just to put off that rejection feeling a little longer i would hold it up to light try to figure it out first so how did that rejection feeling compare as a 17 year old to mm-hmm. an adult when i was that young i didn't fully understand I had enough ego and naivete Mm -hmm. at that age where I didn't think someone was just laughing at my work. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, you know, maybe, maybe, you never know, maybe they'll like this one, you know. So I was very optimistic. And when a rejection came across in the mail or in email increasingly, I would just sort of say like, oh, next time, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was able to kind of keep the engine of submission going. And I would try not to linger too much on any one rejection. Certainly there were disappointing ones, ones where I thought I was close or I thought this would be a really good fit, you know, and it just didn't, didn't come through. Every time that I got a rejection, I would try to turn it into well, what am I going to write next? Mm -hmm. You know, what's my next story going to be that I can tell is better? Because I think another thing that kept me positive was that I could tell that with each story I was writing, I was learning something new and getting a little bit better. I hope that that process of growth is still ongoing. As long as you're continuing to write, there's always a chance to write something even better and to learn from your mistakes and write something better. So whenever a rejection came in, I would think, well, they haven't seen the new story I'm working on. It's going to be really good, you know? Yeah, yeah, the shiny new idea, the shiny new story. Yeah, shiny, yeah. shiny new idea, yeah. And, of course, that story will always, 
it'll sort of disappoint you as soon as it's finished. It's not quite living up to your, your hopes, but you just keep looking forward. And again, maybe the next story, I'm going to learn something new with this story. I remember crying when I got my first rejection and now that's funny, but I too had that feeling of just like, I had so much confidence in myself. And at that point in time, it was very misplaced confidence. At that point in time, (laughs) I I was sending out (laughs) shit. (laughs) I think I was still in the student mindset because a lot of the stuff that I was writing was stuff that started as like an assignment for high school or, you know, something like that. And I might get a good grade on it. And so I think I'm such, I'm a student who's bursting with potential and look at my advanced vocabulary and that sort of thing. It takes a long time to realize that that's not actually what makes for the best story and you just try to grow and evolve and keep learning something new with each new story you write basically no absolutely it's it's a great point that you make about the difference between creativity and fiction and academic writing so I look back at the writing that I did in college that was you know critical essays or Mm -hmm. literary criticism and I read those I remember writing them and thinking, I am such a great writer, right? It's like, I have great grades and I am good. I should write a novel, right? And not having any idea how to write a novel and just being like, this is something I should do. And having to learn that, like having to actually learn the skill of writing a novel through trial and error. But it's funny now because if I go back and I read my critical writing, I read my academic writing. I look Mm -hmm. at that and I don't remember how I did that. Like those skills have slipped. (laughs) I would probably have to go take some classes again in order to be at the level I was at when I was 20. I mean, I'm I'm 40 and I definitely, in some ways, not as smart as I used to be. (laughs) Yeah, there is a peak where we're, you know, sort of at the top of our game academically writing those critical essays. And I agree, I, I would be so rusty if I tried to write a five paragraph essay now or a critical review uh, it's just not a skill that I have kept up with. Yeah. It's just sort of what we prioritize and what kind of writing we want to become good at, I think. Like in college, I think a revelation for me was when I started reading the writing of Alice Munro. Mm-hmm. And she's she's a beautiful writer. But when you look at her on the sentence level, I don't think it's actually like fireworks all the time. Incredibly mm-hmm complex ideas or sentences she she kind of values clarity Mm -hmm. above all I think she's really good at just clearly and simply presenting things I realized that I wanted to write towards that I think I value clarity over pyrotechnic beauty allow the characters and the story to come through clearly it it did mean learning to simplify a little bit I felt the same way about The Glass Castle. It was the first Jeanette Walls mm. I'd ever uh, read or listened to or encountered. And I, of mm-hmm. course, had heard her name a million times, had heard about the book. And I got it on my audiobook app. And I was like, I'm going to listen to this because I was traveling a lot this mm-hmm. month. And I started it and I was like, this is so simplistic. I don't know if I even like it because it is so simplistic, very short sentences. But once I settled into that style, I was like, okay, I see what you're doing. And I I like it. But it it took me a minute because I had just come off of something that was definitely a little more formal, convoluted ideas buried in long sentences with very high vocabulary right. levels and, and I'm just like I'm so smart just for listening to this yeah. yes sophistication right, right. for sure 
And then I, I started yeah. listening to The Glass Castle, and I'm like, I was a librarian for a long time, and I'm like, the Lexile level of this is probably fifth grade. But mm-hmm. at the same mm-hmm. time, so is The Grapes of Wrath. Grapes of Wrath is a favorite of mine, too. I realized that the writers that I really loved were emotionally connected to their characters and were not sacrificing clarity for for emotional power. I just kind of started writing more and more towards that, I think. (laughs) I still am totally wowed by writers that have these incredible sentences and, you know, analogies that I never would have thought of myself. I love having that experience as a reader. In terms of my own writing, I would say it's great to know thyself and know what style and voice you have. So speaking of style and voice and all of these terms that relate to the craft, you teach writing as a college instructor and you also offer adult workshops. So does teaching the craft come naturally to you or was it something that you had to develop over time? Learning how to teach, that's a whole other skill set and it takes time. It takes years, I would Mm -hmm. say, to really develop your confidence and also kind of build up your stable of techniques that you can use with and to help, you know, students and writers. So I started young. I was, I was teaching classes pretty much straight out of grad school. And as part of grad school, I felt very shaky. I felt like that piano teacher who's like one lesson ahead of the kid. (laughs) So as I was learning, I would just happily the next week, I would bring in something I had learned to my students. Gradually, you kind of build your confidence. You develop a kind of ability to read and study technique in the work that you love. Because at first, if you love something, it's really hard to articulate what is at work in it, I think. So as a teacher of creative writing, I think one of the most important skills I had to learn was was to read better mm-hmm. and to notice just like the techniques and the engine of story and the way that even the most purely poetic moments in writing, they've been designed deliberately to achieve an emotional effect in some way. Just kind of finding names for those techniques and sharing them with my students. It took time and study. I hopefully am getting better with each new year that I teach. I keep trying to add new stories as well, because I think it's very possible to get a little stale if you're teaching the same thing over and over. Mm. The best classes I find are ones where there is a spirit of discovery and we're all still learning something together, Mm. uh, participating in the discovery of the text. So I do try to change up my reading list, you know, every year or so, just so I'm learning things along the way too. One of the great things about being a teacher is that you're learning the whole time and students can inspire you and show you things that you haven't seen. When I read a book that I love, or Mm -hmm. if I hate it, I want to talk about Hmm. it. And I feel like I don't understand the book until I have discussed it with someone. Whether they agree Mm -hmm. with me or disagree with me, I feel like I haven't actually experienced the book. I have just skimmed it. Even if I've read every word, I feel like mentally I have only skimmed what this book is trying to do unless I have that classroom 90 minute, we're going to talk about this book Mm -hmm. today, you know? And it's like, (laughs) I miss and love that. And I feel like it's something that the college experience really taught me. And so I will have, I have specific friends that I will send a text message to and I'll be like, you need to read this book so that we can discuss it. You need someone to bounce your own ideas off and to hear what someone else got out of the book Mm -hmm. in order to discover fully how you feel about it. I read this book that 
I think is really good, but I'm conflicted about how I feel about it. And I kept turning to everybody, my friends and uh, and everyone saying like, have you read this book? I just don't know whether it's good or not. I need mm-hmm. to hear whether you think it's good or not. <laughs> Having that discussion makes your experience of a book so much richer, I think. People have changed my mind before. Like I have fully believed hmm. something and then been talked out of it. And I have talked people into things before, too. And it's been like, no, examples from the text. Look at this. As a teacher, I'm always just thrilled when a student has read closely and carefully enough that they're seeing things that I didn't notice, you know. I myself find with teaching that, yes, uh, experience is the only thing that's going to make you good at it. It takes a lot of practice just to feel confident and comfortable up in front of people. It is a public speaking skill as well as a a reading and teaching skill. (laughs) Absolutely, it is. So tell us, what is next for you? What are you working on right now? I am working on a new novel. Somehow I thought that once I'd finished one novel, it would just be easy to write every other novel. Sure. <laughs> but no, it seems to be that I'm back to square one for, for every new project. I, I, you know, each novel has its own challenges, and I have to kind of become a different person person or learn how to be a different person in order to tell this story correctly. It's been slow. It's like I'm a couple of years into it now. I think it's starting to come together, but it's definitely still uh, with my own fixation and fascination with spirituality and religious mm-hmm. belief. It's going to mm-hmm. be a story involving that. It's in pieces. I'm starting to stitch the pieces together now. Tell us where listeners can find you online. At my website, BlairHurley.com. And you can find out more about The Devoted there. I'm also on Twitter at B Hurley and on Instagram at Blair L. Hurley. So check me out. See my photos of books that I'm reading these days. And mm-hmm. uh, on my Twitter feed, I generally post like a daily writing tip. Oh, that's so, awesome. Yeah, follow me. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash writer writer pants on fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Rider Rider Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. <laughs>